Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my regular co-host, Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum, Jay Carson. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Jay. How are you today? Oh, I'm, I'm pretty good. Yeah, well, me too. We, we have a lot to talk about today, so why don't we just get right to it, uh, starting with some of uh, the more important uh, results from the latest round of primary elections, which took place this week. Uh, on Tuesday, we had primaries in, let's see here, Vermont, Connecticut, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. And, you know, there were a couple of things, Jay, that jumped out at me. First off, in Vermont, uh, the Democratic nominee, Christine Hallquist, became the first transgender person in U.S. history to be nominated for governor by uh, a major party. And she's a former energy company executive. Uh, the Hallquist has, a, I would say, definitely an uphill battle against the Republican incumbent, Governor Phil Scott. Uh, you know, and there are some Democrats, of course, that are hoping that Scott's, uh, well, his, his poll numbers have been sort of uh, support been kind of lukewarm. But uh, honestly, I think that this is pretty much still a solid Republican state. And I don't think that Hallquist has that much of a chance. Uh, do you have any you know, thoughts on the, the fact that that uh, Hallquist was nominated in the first place? Uh, you know, well, I, I don't know. And I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to. Uh... I guess because you know, look, I I'm not someone who was has been watching the race closely uh, for any uh, period of time, um, so I'm hoping it's not just a, uh, a you know tokenism sort of thing of hey, we want to have the first transgender uh, gubernatorial candidate. Um, I don't know. I mean, so I so I guess I don't I don't I don't know enough about uh, her to to really give a good comment on the merits. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, as as opposed to her opponent, um, I guess it's it would it would be much more surprising, I think, if a you know transgender person were to win a Republican primary. Yeah. Um, but so, so it's it's um, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not sure to to read uh, any more into that than um, you know that the fact that that uh, the, the transgender piece I, I think would play well uh, to the progressive base. Um, and that that may have helped. Uh, sure. So, and I, and I think also that uh, you know certainly it plays well the progressive base as you point out, but but I think also that that somebody with that experience, I mean that's a I won't say it's a unique experience, but it's an experience certainly that is I think difficult for those of us who are who are uh, not transgendered to appreciate, and so I think that. Hallquist brings something just having lived that experience that that you know could potentially on some issues be valuable. I, I sure I, I suppose and and I'll, I should you know I should because um, I don't think we ever talked about this uh, but I have a a friend of mine who recently uh, is is transitioning um, and and it's it's again it's a uh, you know it, it's a something that I have never. Um, dealt with as far as someone personally who I knew. Uh, and, and it's, it's, uh, I'm trying to even think of the exact words for it, but again, it's, it is a thing of, I don't really have any context, uh, to put that into. And, and I suppose if you've got a candidate, uh, who, who runs, uh, as a transgender person and, and sort of would bring that context or bring that experience to a lot of people, um, uh, I think that's, that's probably a, a good thing in general. Although, you know, I don't know, 
look at the job of governor. Um, a lot of it comes down to uh, what are what are the priorities in the state budget. Um, I don't know that that your gender or your previous gender or uh, transitioning state really has much to do with with those you know, basic governing questions. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I would imagine a Hulkwist's experience as a, as a top executive at, at a big right. company yeah. would be the business of thing would go there. a lot farther. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, there was kind of a more general theme of diversity, at least to a certain extent on the Democratic side. I mean, it showed up in, for instance, the, the primary for Minnesota's fifth congressional district, uh, uh, voters nominated, uh, uh, Ilhan Omar, who's a former Somali refugee. Uh, in fact, in 2016, she became the first Somali American to win elective office in the entire United States in, in a statehouse seat. And uh, now this is, uh, unlike Vermont, this is a heavily Democratic district. And so she's almost assured of being the first right. Somali American who will be elected to, to Congress. And, and also, I should mention Connecticut. Uh, Johanna Hayes, she was nominated by Democrats for their fifth congressional district. And this is another strong Democratic district. Um, Hayes is likely to become Connecticut's first Afri African-American woman member of Congress. Uh, she was also, I should mention, the 2016 National Teacher of the Year. And uh, and as you as you might expect, and I don't mean this as a dig, it's going to sound that way maybe before I said <laughs> it, I realized so I just wanted to preface this, but to, to run against uh, Omar and Hayes, the Republicans nominated, uh, you know, to well, white people. Um, and so, you know, I, I wanted to, well, no, but, but I mean, seriously, on, <laughs> but, but no, it, it, it's, you know, we see a lot no, I, of, I, I, necessarily, I, you know, okay, but go ahead. But no, I mean, I, I mean, the point I'm making here is we see a lot of this diversity in a lot of ways in the Democratic coalition, and we don't see as much of it in the Republican coalition. And that's just, that's just a fact. Now, the extent to which that fact matters, that's certainly open to debate. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. I think, you know, look, I think diversity is uh, is fantastic. Um, and, and quite honestly, in Republican circles, uh, it's, it's been my experience when there's the opportunity uh, to promote a candidate of color or, or a candidate of, of uh, uh, different, eth uh, you know, ethnicity, children of immigrants. And I'm thinking of, you know, uh, 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 Tim Scott, uh, Nikki Haley, um, uh, oh, the congresswoman from, um, um, oh, I apologize, I'm, I'm, I'm losing the state, but from um, uh, Salt Lake City. Um, you know, again, Republicans very much want to do that. Uh, the difficulty is that, <laughs> you know, the polls tend to show it. It's not a matter of that. Uh, Republicans don't uh, don't like uh, minorities. It, it's sort of minorities don't like Republicans. Is is what the the uh, the polls tend uh, yeah, to show. Yeah, it becomes a chicken and egg kind of thing, obviously, because a lot of minorities, and whether you agree with this or not, feel that Republican policies uh, are do not work for them in the way sure. that Democratic policies do. Sure, and they they'd be incorrect, of course, I'd argue, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but regardless, that's that's the the perception, and it, it's played upon. Um, so, you know, to some extent, sometimes these these diversity uh, issues are going to be creatures of the district. Now, obviously, you don't get something like that in Vermont, but that is the case in, in say, Minnesota. Um, I don't know that, that the, the Democrats do well necessarily running on a um, diversity uh, 
you know, I, I guess always, just always nominating the, uh, the, the non-white uh, candidate. Um, I think you, you run the best candidate uh, for the race uh, regardless. And sometimes that's going to be uh, someone of color or someone of a, of a different uh, heritage than, than you typically see. And sometimes it's not. So um, I think, I mean, the, there tends to be sort of a, a fetishism uh, in the, on the left uh, with diversity that I think is, is, can be counterproductive. And we'll see how that plays out. And again, some of these races, it's not going to make a difference because it's a solid, uh, solid Democrat seat. Um, uh, in some cases like Vermont, I don't think it's going to make a difference, not because uh, there's going to be some big wave of, of anti-transgender uh, people who come out to vote, but because, look, you've got a, an incumbent who's got a pretty solid record and is pretty well liked, and that would be an uphill battle uh, for anyone. Yeah. Well, you know, it sounds like fundamentally you and I don't disagree here that, uh, that on the margins, diversity, having more diverse candidates is a, a good thing. Uh, but of course the fun, the most important thing is sort of the, the, the basic qualifications to, 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 uh, succeed in the office essentially. And, and diversity can add something to the picture, something valuable, but the most important thing is, can this person do, do the things like you point out the, the budget and, and, you know, what, and, uh, be effect, be an effective legislator or that sort of thing. Well, it's, and it's also, yeah, the, the, uh, the ideas that they bring to office that they're campaigning on is their background. And it's also. Uh, what what they want to do sure. um so and of course just like as you point out and i think fairly that on the left there are, there are people who uh some who raise diversity as much, perhaps more important than it should be i mean on the right there are people who actively push back against diversity and we don't really support either of those uh, personally no. we don't support no. either of those uh, approaches and, and i would just say again in the when you say on the right i mean i think you're you're talking the broader uh, the broader right. I mean, the the Republican Party, um, as as I've, you know, become familiar with it, certainly isn't like that. Uh, like I said, I think anytime. I mean, if you look, it's you know, I'm thinking back Ohio Ohio uh, politics political history. Uh, uh, Republicans nominated uh, Ken Blackwell, uh, a black man, uh, to run for governor. Um, he lost uh, miserably, <laughs> but. Again, I don't think that had anything to do with with uh, right. his his, uh, his race. I think it was uh, it was just a tough year for Republicans, uh, and he was actually sort of he beat out uh, Jim Petro, who had been the more um, uh, you know establishment candidate, if you will. Um, so what, what I'm saying is, as I think there's evidence uh, in a lot of places that Republican voters are, um, uh, you know, aren't, aren't opposed to diversity, and in fact will. Uh, uh, will will nominate uh, people of color, um, uh, particularly if if there are people of color who who agree with them ideologically. And I think that I think that's overall it's a good thing because the the it eventually you know it's a it's a it's a antidote to some extent to identity politics. Sure, and and certainly uh, it sort of says that anyone of a certain race or a certain color or a certain background must think the same way. Yeah, and that that's the Republican Party that I used to be yeah. a member of, and I know that's your Republican Party. I would argue that increasingly that is not the Republican Party of Donald Trump, and that's a admit that's maybe a different discussion though. Right. 
So, you know, at one race in which diversity doesn't play much of an issue at all is Wisconsin. Uh, you know, the Republican incumbent, of course, is Scott Walker, who, if you recall, if you recall back, the and I'm most sure, elected governor, you know, yeah. <laughs> and he was actually thought of as is one of the back in 2015 and early 2016 as one of the strongest potential Republican presidential candidates, uh, in part, thanks to his very strong fight against the unions in his state, but he flamed out really quickly in 2016. Well, he's running again. He's going to be running against Democrat Tony Evers. Now, I should point out, Democrats have come close to defeating Walker, both in 2012 and 2014, though close obviously isn't good enough. And there are some who think that, well, they, you know, if you inch closer every time, and this could be the year, and a year that looks really good for Democrats so far, though I'd say my my sense of it is that Evers is still a slight underdog in this race, though it's going to be, I think, a, a pretty close one. Uh, what what do you think, Jay? Do you think this is going to be the year that the Democrats finally give Walker the boot, or does he have a couple more years in him? Well, you know, I'll tell you, I think it, it uh, as you sort of alluded to, it's going to come down to turnout. Uh, my sense is that uh, they're not going to get that that turnout that they, they want or need, um, given that you know, consider the last election was was very much. Um, I mean, it was it was a there was a recall election. I mean, so uh, pretty much everyone who was who was mad or disliked Scott Walker, they they got him out. Um, so my um, and and at that point, that anger was much more uh, palpable, and and uh, you know the the things were still in progress and so forth. So I I think I think Walker wins. Uh, but again, if it if it should turn out to be some sort of a Democrat uh, blue wave. Uh, type election with uh, massive Democrat turnout, uh, that's what would make the difference. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one more election I wanted to talk about before we move on is Kansas's primary elections. They weren't this last week. They were the week before. But the race for the Republican gubernatorial, gubernatorial nomination was so close that it took until this week for, well, it wasn't for one one of the candidates, one of the nominees to, or sorry, candidates to concede. And this was a big victory for the Trump wing of the party because uh, Kansas Secretary of State Chris Colbeck just squeaked by the much more re- moderate Republican incumbent, who's the current governor, uh, Jeff Collier. Uh, now, Colbeck, of course, is an, an immigration hardliner. He was a member of uh, President or Donald Trump's transition team. He's the guy who led that so-called vote fraud panel that President Trump put together, uh, you know. And so this is a this is a Trump guy, a strong Trump guy. And uh, Colbeck will be running against Democrat Laura Kelly, who's a member of Kansas's state Senate. Now, Mm -hmm. according to the Cook Political Report, which is sort of my go to source for these things, they rate this race as a as a toss up. And I think given what I expect to see from Democrats in the fall, I think Republicans really hurt themselves potentially by nominating Colbeck over over Collier. But we shall see. What do you think, Jay? Yeah, it's it's going to um, uh, it's sort of a funny thing. Now, again, across the board, Democrats are, are going to run that, you know, every Republican is a uh, ally of Donald Trump. And, and you know, I would imagine Joe sort of the, the split screen sort of, you know, Donald Trump's policies and so forth. Um, but with some people, it might stick more than others. In this case, I could see those allegations really sticking. Um, uh, but uh, we'll we'll see. Um, what was what, how much did Trump win Iowa by? Iowa, I don't recall. Right. So I mean, I, I'll be just curious to see the um, the fall off of, of if it's consistent or if it's if it's the same. So uh, again, that's going to come down 
turnout wise, I think um, Democrats are going to be as energized as they as they can be. Uh, and I think to some extent, Republicans, um, you know, a lot of them will, will will vote the party line. And then you've got the Trump Republicans, who many were not really in the party before they were independents or just sort of non-voters, uh, uh, you know, will vote for the Trump candidate. So I think there's it sort of balances out a little bit. I mean, there's the uh, the Democratic anger, but uh, there's there's some balancing. I don't I don't see many Republicans. And again, you know, every every gubernatorial election, every uh, district election comes down to the that district and that district's issues. Uh, so it's tough to I'm I'm not I'm not a big believer in you know big wave type type things. Sometimes they happen, but I, I think sometimes people read waves yeah. where there there aren't. Well, uh, I, sometimes I, I, you just sometimes I, groups just have one candidate is better than the other. I, so. I think you're I think you're whistling past the graveyard on this one, but I would be too. Probably in your position, uh, I expect. Uh, but but then again, it might be wishful thinking on my part. But one of us will be more right on this, and we will know in in a few months here. Actually, so it's coming mm -hmm. up quicker than you might think. So you know, I, I want to move on and talk about uh, another big story this week. President Trump followed through on his earlier threats to take the fairly unprecedented step of pulling the security clearances of his critics. Now now this week. It was former CIA director John Brennan, though the administration has named other former government officials that they're considering acting against. And these include former CIA director Michael Hayden, former NSA or National Security Advisor Susan Rice, former director of National Intelligence James Clapper, and former acting attorney general Sally Yates. And there are a few others in there as well. Now, in, a, in the statement from the president that uh, Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders read, uh, according to this statement, Brennan's clearance was pulled due to his making a series of unfounded and outrageous allegations, wild outbursts on the Internet and television about this administration, and also that any benefits that senior officials might have gleaned from consultations with Mr. Brennan are now outweighed by the risk posed by his erratic conduct and behavior. Mr. Brennan has a history that calls into question his objectivity and credibility. And I read that statement and I thought, wow, um, Donald Trump is saying this about somebody. Well, I well, guess he would be the one to know about wild outbursts and uh, questions yeah. about his objectivity and credibility and erratic conduct and behavior. I mean, that was my first comment. Just, wow, this is... That's that's about as shameless as it gets. I guess I sure. don't know. I'm sure, but, but I, it doesn't. But it doesn't mean that he's wrong. Go ahead, expand on that. Well, I mean, I I think yeah, obviously uh, Trump does uh, all sorts of erratic, uh, crazy sort of things and and shameless behavior. There's there's no question about that. Um, but he's also the elected president. Um, so uh, you know that's that's sort of it. It comes with the job. Um. Uh, in, in the other case, you're talking about someone who is a uh, former um, uh, administrative employee of the government, um, and, and is is saying things that I really I think it's it's sort of uh, troubling when you have the former CIA director who will, will make uh, accusations again that there is collusion and so forth, but you know not offer proof. I think that's that's an issue now. Uh, Setting aside the, the idea that, that what Trump did was stupid and petty, um, I don't think, uh, you know, is, is there really any uh, danger? Does it does the outweigh his, his consultation with, with uh, current government folks outweigh uh, uh, any problem, any um, uh, value you could give? Yeah, yeah value. I mean, I, I, 
No, I, I doubt it. And and in you know most cases, you know when folks uh, retain security clearances um, and they're renewed, I believe like every five years. Uh, it's you know usually for the purpose of they're doing other contracting or they're sitting on on boards. Um, uh, so I. Well, you know, and the, and I should... so it's a, to me, it, look, it 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 came out as a uh, this is a dumb, petty, stupid, Trumpian thing to do. Uh, is he authorized to do it? Absolutely. Um, um, well, I think there's more than that. I should you know, follow up by saying, of course, Brennan responded. He had the big op-ed in the New York Times where he said that the president's claims of no collusion were, in his words, hogwash. And he basically painted Trump as this increasingly desperate guy, uh, you know, in light of the, the Mueller investigation, maybe moving into its final stages. And then the president talks to a Wall Street Journal reporter and says about this whole thing, saying these people let it, meaning the Russia investigation. So I think it's something that had to be done, meaning pulling security clearances. And then Mm -hmm. finally, and this to me is the most troubling aspect, there's a a senior White House official cited by the Washington Post, and this was on late Friday, and we're recording this Saturday morning, uh, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders and the deputy chief of staff, the White House, Bill Shine. They've actually supposedly discussed what times would be best to announce already planned additional security clearance revocations in order to deflect from unfavorable news events. And so, I mean, what we have here, I think, is more than just Trump being petty and vindictive. We cer- that's certainly that. But it's actually uh, using security clearances as a political weapon. And, you know, I I immediately thought of uh, Richard Nixon using the IRS as a political weapon against his opponents. And there was this week a great article from David French in National Review about his argument that this is a legitimate constitutional concern. And, you know, certainly there's no right to a security clearance, but it's argument. (laughs) Right. But his argument was that. Keeping it shouldn't be a reward for good political behavior, and private citizens shouldn't be essentially subject to retaliation for exercising their First Amendment rights. And I think, you know, I think that French, that the French is really onto something here. And this isn't some, you know, wacko liberal. This is, right. you know, somebody coming, coming from the yeah. right. Yeah. And so that that's the thing that concerns me is that this is something that really we haven't seen before. And I just tend to think, and this goes back to my general theme about Donald Trump, is that he doesn't really care about the country or security or anything about that. His primary and fundamental and almost sole focus is what's best for Donald Trump. And I think that represents a real break from almost any other president that we can think of. And I think it's a fairly, you know, not a fairly, it's a, it's a tragic thing for the country. Yeah. No, and I'll say I usually agree with David French. I don't in this instance. Um, I think what, what Trump is doing is it's, he's practicing politics. Um, you know, look, the government gives certain benefits to, to folks. Uh, you know, one of those would be like a security clearance. Um, but it's also the government's, um, or the the president, the executive branches, uh, uh, discretion to, to get rid of that. Now, if he's doing that for a stupid, petty reason, uh, he should be called out on that. Um, but I don't think this raises to any sort of constitutional issue other than, I mean, look, all, all, that's, that's how politics works is it's carrots and sticks. Uh, and fortunately in our, our system, I mean, the, the carrots and sticks are, are, you know, it's, it's not a matter of someone losing their liberty, someone, uh, being locked up or something if you're, you're an opponent. Um, but you may not get, uh, some of the, the perks that, that, uh, you would have otherwise. So, you know, I, I think something that, 
I'm fairly certain you and I both agree on is there is the law, which is obviously hugely important. Then there sure. is the unwritten law. And this is a kind of a more sort of Burkean sort of idea. I like the unwritten law. Yep. And, yep. and the unwritten law is really our sort of understanding of it and our willing to a- adhere to it is kind of what keeps us together. Because if we just go by the letter of the law, we f- things fall apart. And I think the problem is, is when you get someone like Donald Trump, who I would say is a man of no virtue and no honor and no decency, who doesn't give a rip for the unwritten law, you start to see problems with the system. And we need enough people in the system who care about that unwritten law and where things like virtue and honor and duty matter to them or else the whole thing falls apart. Right. No, and, and you're exactly right on that. But but I, I would disagree with the idea that, again, it poses some sort of uh, constitutional capital C uh, sure. problem for, right. for a president to do this. I, I, am, I am all for it. I guess, and I think that's, that's a great thing. And, and so often we, we talk about Burkeanism. Uh, the, the, the way it works is it's sort of a soft power. It's soft pushback. It is. It is uh, so many other people saying, "Oh, come on, this is ridiculous." Now, and and so it's. I think that'll work itself out. And I think that's that's happening. Um, there will be plenty of people uh, on both sides. And again, this is David David French coming from the right, saying that this is this is just uh, inappropriate. And it's again t- to me petty, petty, vindictive, unpresidential. Doesn't do much um, uh, to move the ball forward on any any policy. Um, uh, well, I, know, yeah, well, we'll see what happens. Front. I mean, I think part but, of the, but again, it's, you know, part of, part of politics is anytime you're, you're doing something, you're going to have enemies, uh, and they're carrots and sticks. And he's, he's using this one, which is, uh, again, most, uh, historic, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, it's like throwing at a batter's head a little bit. Right. Um, well, it's, it's, y- yes not, and it's, no, because if you do that, then there's again, retaliation, that, yeah, there's a, but there's a law, uh, let's, let's, let's maybe uh, throwing, uh, throwing inside. Yeah. Well, How about that? well, you know, it, it, this brings me back to one of the, you, you and I are old enough to remember this one of George HW Bush's favorite words that he was mocked for, I think to a certain extent was prudence. And he would say it wouldn't be prudent, you know, and that idea of prudence and kind of the related idea of temperance, I think, especially in a leader, especially in the you know supreme leader, if you will, uh, is you know <laughs> is supreme well leader. is far more important than in any other position because people are in less of a position to push back. And so, if those norms of again of virtue, duty, and honor aren't already present in that person, that person can do a lot of damage to the democratic order while not violating a single law. And yeah, I think I, it, it, it would do. It does damage to the. Um, um, I'm trying to think the, the best way that to the uh, uh, the character of the organization, yeah. if you will, the the, the, the culture, uh, and that that as you erode that that culture, you lose something. Um, uh, so so yeah. So I, I don't think I don't think we disagree. I, the only point I disagree on is that there would there is any uh, legal remedy or anything like that to this or no, they're, think, they're, they're, they somehow exceeded yeah. his constitutional powers in doing that. No, I don't think that. we disagree on that either, actually. So we're actually sort of in agreement entirely on this, I think. So go figure. But, you know, I also wanted to mention a related story. Uh, the FBI fired Agent Peter Strzok, who, of course, was the was the guy who helped lead the Bureau's investigation into Russian interference. That is until those anti- and also the Hillary Clinton emails and the Hillary Clinton emails. Yep, uh, that was he was only on the Russia Busy guy. team. Yeah, until 
those anti-Trump texts he sent to fellow agent Lisa Page, who he was having an affair with, those were revealed. And then Robert Mueller immediately removed him from the team there. Now, the FBI's Office of Professional Responsibility recommended that Strzok be demoted and put on a 60-day suspension, but that was overruled by Deputy Director David Bowditch, who ordered the firing. So I was wondering, Jay, what do you think? Did did Bowditch make the right call in in overruling the OPR and and firing Strzok? Yes, I I think he did. Um, There is a lot that that needs to be done. to sort of rehabilitate uh, the FBI. And, and again, we were just talking about, I guess, sort of safeguarding institutions uh, and then the character and culture of institutions. Um, to me, it's not even so much the the um, anti-Trump stuff that he texted, but but sort of the anti-Trump supporter uh, stuff. So, you know, again, he's at a Walmart in Southern Virginia and you could smell the Trumps. You know, that's um, this, this really disdain for... Um, uh, for the the country and the 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 people he's supposed to be serving, uh, if if anyone in a a corporate position had had done those sort of things, uh, I think they would be dismissed immediately. Um, certainly much sterner than uh, than Struck was, uh, and also again the the credibility of the um, uh, and what he's done, rightly or wrongly, uh, from an FBI perspective, I think they ought to be angry at him because uh, his tweets have have called into question. The, um, uh, the the credibility and the fairness of the investigation. Yeah. Um, you know, I, it's it's sort of yeah. it's sort of if you go if you go back to like uh, you know the Mark Furman and OJ sort of, sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, Furman made some really dumb things, had done some dumb things in the past, uh, had a history of of some some uh, racial animus and so forth, uh, and as a result, uh, you know, the defense was able to play that up. And uh, OJ uh, walked. Um, it's it's the same sort of thing. If if I'm the FBI and I've I've got a guy out there who is sending these texts that would make the do anything to undermine, you know what was you know they're saying a, a valid investigation. Um, he's got to go. You know, I I agree with you, and I don't. Well, maybe I I don't know. That's, that's a kind of very academic sort of way to put it. But uh, I think both. Both sides here, both the the Office of Professional Responsibility and the Deputy Director made the right call. I think inside the FBI, in that office, they need to make their decision based on the merits of the case and not looking at the politics. So I think that's their job, and they did that job. And if you just take away all the other context, I think that their recommendation was entirely appropriate. But then it's, of course, up to the people who are, you know, running the agency and have to take the politics into account to weigh those factors and make the decision. And so, you know, I think that the deputy director Bodge did, did the right thing in, in this case, you know? And so that's, that's really, that's really insightful of you. Uh, thank you. Every once in a while, I yeah, can, and you're right. No, I mean, no, there. cause I, I think that's exactly right. No, the, um, the officer professional responsibility had to look at this purely on, uh, uh, the objective piece of this, not taking into account the optics. Uh, but the senior management has to look uh, at the bigger picture. Uh, if this had been if this had been some other agent uh, investigating a bank robbery in Des Moines, uh, I don't think it it would have been the same same situation. But because these actions uh, called into question the integrity of the bureau uh, from a political standpoint uh, as as a whole, and you know impacting elections and so forth, uh, yeah, this step had to be taken. Right. 
There you go. We're, we're being we're being very agreeable on a lot of this yeah. stuff today. How about that? Um, you know, before we get to the next story, which we may or may not agree on, we would like to thank our newest supporter, Nets Rolf, who's our latest sustaining monthly supporter on Patreon. So thank, thank you. you. Yeah, we really appreciate it. And and you know, Rolf, like everyone else who becomes a supporter of the show, it's not only like I said that warm fuzzy feeling you get by knowing that you're helping us keep us going, but you also get access to our special supporters only after show. Last week, Trey and I on the show talked about the political and legal issues kind of surrounding Robert Mueller's now eight-month-long attempt to interview President Trump, uh, as well as our thoughts on uh, many social media and podcast outlets removing Alex Jones's InfoWars content. And this week, Jay and I have some good stuff lined up for you as well. So if you want to do that, uh, just go ahead and go to politicsguys.com slash support. That's the direct link. Or just go to politicsguys.com and kind of, you know, know around there you'll see the support thing on the menu or the patreon or paypal links and click on those and you're all set so thank you very much we really do appreciate it okay moving on some well extraordinarily disturbing news really sickening news came out of a pennsylvania grand jury this week Uh, of course i'm talking about the massive report detailing allegations of widespread sexual of, of abuse of at least a thousand victims by around 300 sexual predator priests Now, it's believed that the actual numbers are most likely considerably higher than that, but really a culture of denial and cover-up within the church has made it pretty difficult to know just how many predators and victims there really are out there. There there are going to be almost no prosecutions coming out of this because in almost all of these instances, the statute of limitations has run out, and under current Pennsylvania law, Victims of child sexual abuse have until the age of 30 to file civil suits and until they're 50 to file criminal charges. And Jay, I'm sure you remember the, the scandal that the church faced that was very similar to this in right. 2002. That's, Boston. Yeah, the Boston yeah. Globe did this big uh, expose and they uncovered a similar thing. And, and after that, the church instituted some major reforms in how they handled abuse. And the grand jury actually addressed this and they said, well, These reforms have been a step in the right direction, but a lot more needs to be done. Now, a couple of days after the report was released, the Vatican issued a public statement calling the abuse criminally and morally reprehensible and pledging the victims that the Pope is on their side. The statement further read that the church must learn hard lessons from its past and there should be accountability for both abusers and those who permitted abuse to occur. But that said, uh, a lot of people who are sort of speaking for or defending the church, what they're regularly pointing out here in this case is that almost none of the alleged cases of sexual abuse identified in the report took place after these 2002 reforms. And so they're arguing that additional action isn't necessarily called for, which is, you know, a position that a they, lot of people they could be right. Yeah. yeah. Well, in Pennsylvania, there's a state rep, Mark Rossi. Uh, he said he uh, alleges he was raped by a Catholic priest as a child, and he plans to propose a law that would eliminate the statute of limitations for child sexual abuse. And he calls the, 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 those limits at till 30 or 50 archaic and arbitrary. And there are also calls to implement the grand jury's most, what I would say is the grand jury's most controversial proposal, and that is to open up a two-year so-called civil window in the existing statute of limitations, and that would allow victims over the age of 30 to sue the church for damages. And there have actually been similar proposals along these lines in other states in the past, 
And as best I can tell, all of them have gone down to defeat after some pretty fierce uh, lobbying by the Catholic Church. And their argument here is that this would open up dioceses to really financial catastrophe and possible yeah. bankruptcy. And that's, you know, exactly what happened to, for instance, the Diocese of Wilmington in 2009 after they just had a flood of abuse suits. And I should point out that in terms of the Catholic Church's organization, that from a legal standpoint, they're organized into dioceses. And so that, I think, if I understand it correctly, limits the church's overall liability for these things. Exactly, that sort of thing. So, you know, Jay, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. I mean, I, 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 I'm sure I know how you feel about the abuses themselves. Uh, but what about these legislative proposals, which I think are my kind of more, you know, kind of broadly American politics based because they would affect more than just the church, because obviously you can't craft a proposal that just targets a particular religion. That's yeah. a, you know, constant, that's a, right. you know, a First Amendment kind of thing. But what right. do you what do you think about that? I, I think it's it's really problematic. Um, in that the one of the the hallmarks that that we rely on and the rule of law, uh, and this goes to individuals, institutions, uh, you know, government institutions, uh, is certainty uh, that that things can be settled, and once they are settled, they're done and over. Uh, so the idea that that you could retroactively, you know, after statute of limitations has passed, rewrite it, uh, and and uh, you know, litigate things that that were not brought, uh, that's that's truly uh, a problem, I think, for Barakon. I understand the idea of, well, the, the victims ought to get uh, recompense uh, for what they've uh, they've been through. Um, but there's there's a system in place. And uh, if you want to change that system going forward, uh, I think there's there's some good arguments on both sides of that. Uh, but uh, I'm not I, I, I that that just kind of I bristle at the idea of saying, okay, well, this statute of limitation has passed. Well, until we change our mind, uh, that, that gets into just a, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of, fan of slippery slope arguments, um, but, but this, this slope is pretty slippery. So you think it feels kind of like an ex post facto sort of type of thing, basically? It's, yeah, and yeah, I'd say, yeah, it's not exactly an ex post facto law, but it's, it's close, close to enough, it, so that, yeah. that same spirit, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I, uh, and, I, and I could see that there would be constitutional challenges. I don't know that in the civil realm, uh, I don't know that there would be a constitutional issue on that. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, there might be state constitutional issues. Uh, in the criminal context, I think there definitely would be a constitutional issue. Yeah, you know, that, that's, a, that's a great point. I had right when, in fact, right when you started saying that, I was like, oh, yeah, that seems maybe that's why they talked about opening up that window just for civil and not for criminal. Yeah prosecutions. Now, I, you know, and I get that, but of course, it's so difficult to say to, well, victims of any sort of uh, abuse or crime, but particularly the sort of just heinous sort of stuff. And yeah. I don't know if you yeah. read any of the report, but some of this stuff would literally sicken you. It did, it did to me. And just to say to those people, sorry, you're 31, uh, you know, you're, you're out of luck, buddy. Yeah. Uh, that's just that's just a bitter pill to swallow, uh, to, to say the least. And but, um, but by the same token, I mean, also consider uh, there's there's what's called uh, uh, in the law. It's 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 a related concept to statute of limitations. It's common law uh, idea of latches, meaning, listen, if you wait too long to pursue a claim, there's an inherent unfair unfair unfairness because, um, you know, evidence hasn't been preserved. Um, 
there are you know witnesses are dead are gone uh, that sort of thing um, that you know after the passage of time um, how can a you know for, for example if you're a Catholic diocese and and someone uh, brings suit uh, at let's say they expand at the age of fifty. Uh, there, there'd be a good likelihood that the priest who actually committed those crimes, the people who were uh, in the administrative capacity that may have covered it up, uh, are long are all dead and gone. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask and, you about and, that. And yet, yeah. and yet, here's the thing: the, you know, to a jury, they would still say, "Well, look, hey, let's give this guy some money." Um, so, the, I mean, there, and to me, that's there, there's an inherent unfairness there. Um, uh, but let me let know. me ask you that because if I understand and. and You'll know a lot more about this than I will, but I will. now in, <laughs> in in civil cases, right? You have to prove your case through a preponderance of the evidence. Is that the is that the typical standard? Correct. Right? Yes. So yes. it would seem to me that if you don't have witnesses and things like that, because they're you know dead and evidence hasn't been pre- preserved, it would actually make it more difficult for the people making that claim to meet that standard. Or, or no, I don't am think I am so. I no. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the difficulty would be the victim would still be able to put on evidence and say, uh, hi, I was I was abused, and here were the circumstances, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and you turn to the fence and you say, what do you have to say to that? And they say, well, you know, we, we can't produce the priest who says it didn't happen. We can't produce these other folks. We don't have any records uh, going back that far. Um uh, and the jury could well look at it as well. What what evidence did I see? I heard from this guy who said he was abused. No one contradicted that. Okay. Um, so uh, you know, and that's enough. I mean, from, for that's enough yeah. for a legal standard for that sort of thing to be okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. That seems messed up. So okay, that 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 helps actually. I mean, look, no, here, I mean, here it comes down to the jury would be the finder of fact, mm-hmm. and if they believed the witness, right? I mean, if they think, look, this guy's being truthful. Um, he says he was abused. Uh, there's nothing, uh, that's been put on to suggest that he wasn't, that's absolutely meets preponderance of evidence. So then it would be different than if we looked at it from a, uh, from a criminal standpoint, because the standard is raised considerably Correct. and it would be a lot harder to do, to, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, essentially. Right. And the, and the, uh, yeah, the burden is, is on the state to prove certain elements of, of a crime. And those elements are often, you know, again, you know, there's a, a, a mens rea component that you do it knowingly or intentionally. Uh, there may be other uh, uh, aggravating or mitigating factors that, you know, depending on the statute that you're looking at, uh, they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. It's sort of a, a whole laundry list. And in the civil case, it's it's really, if you're just talking about a, a civil tort, um, uh, you know, it's a lot saying. easier. Yeah. And, and I guess part of the problem is, is that in a criminal case, you would have to charge, you you would have to charge individuals and Correct. they could be dead. And in a civil case, of course, the institution goes on indefinitely. And so you can get some kind of compensation. Whereas if some, yep. some priest or bishop who would part, would took part of a cover up, if they're dead, then it's not like you can do anything to them and you can't do anything to the church itself or the diocese right, itself. Right, as a corporate right? entity, gotcha. yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. gotcha. Well, you know, and, and I guess it just, when I looked at some of the numbers, though, I could see why people want to do something, because, you know, this investigation was only, only covered six of the seven dioceses in one state. I mean, there are 145 Catholic church dioceses in the United States. Now, of course, there's no way to know the scope of all this, but if there were, you know, conservatively, a thousand victims in six dioceses, 
and you consider that there are 145 dioceses, I mean, again, the, just the potential number of victims and predator priests is, is really just staggering. I mean, it's, again, it just, the whole thing makes me sick, and it just seems like one of these situations where we want to, you know, we obviously want to do something, and I would certainly love to see investigations like this in every state. And I don't, I know, I don't know if that's going to happen, but I think it's certainly something that, that should happen. Cause I think well, that that would, I would be stunned if, if every, every state that did an investigation did, did like this, didn't find similar type things. Well, something that, that could be done uh, that, that would deal with this is, is if the, the church could uh, again, create its own system for uh, compensating folks. I mean, they could set aside a, a, a victim's compensation fund uh, and and do this, you know, privately and and sort of essentially waive the statute of limitations uh, for certain uh, uh, certain folks and and set us set up some sort of a, a procedure, um, you know, by which people could be compensated. Now, I don't know whether they'll do that or not, or. Um, that's that's sort of a, a a big question, and they don't have to do a lot of wrestling with this based on uh, again their their finances and and uh, the 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 moral obligation to do the right thing, uh, as well as the moral obligation to make sure that um, claims they're paying uh, are correctly being paid. So, well, and this I is- don't know, but that would be able to, but this and this kind of goes back to I just wanted to there's there's a little bit of a parallel between what we're just talking about. Um, with Trump and the intelligence community, and also with struck with the FBI, that that the culture of institutions matters. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think that's that just kind of is. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think the best thing that could happen would be grand jury reports in forty nine more states, and the the church being just essentially rocked to its core. Because that, as you know, culture is an extraordinarily difficult thing to change, and and it yeah. can take it can take a cataclysm to change a culture. And I think if it's, even if it's something just like one individual state, that's not going to be enough. I think it needs to just be something that just totally devastates the church so it can be rebuilt as a, as an organization that doesn't have such just an egregious moral failing, moral rot at, at you know, and in, in so I, I hope to see that, but we'll, we'll see what, the, what kind of, uh, what happens as a result of this. All right. Well, finally this week, let's talk about a uh, just a good old fashioned uh, policy story. <laughs> I'd like to All get right. away from some of this uh, just incredibly sad stuff. stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's just and it's just just heartbreaking too. Um. Anyway, this week, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos announced plans to rescind a regulation that currently requires for-profit colleges to prove that the students they enroll can get decent-paying jobs. Uh, this uh, so it's called the Gainful Employment Rule. And it was enacted during the Obama administration after a large number of for-profit higher education institutions were involved in scandals. Basically, they involved schools that more or less set up to, well, defraud students and, you know, rake in a lot of federal aid that the students had received, giving them basically a worthless education in return. And since 2010, Almost half of the then it was then it was two thousand for profit schools. About half of them have closed, and their student population has declined by about one point six million. And there is a general agreement, even in the for profit education sector, that these rules did have their intended effect of driving out the the worst actors, the most the fraudulent apples, schools, yeah. like you know, say Trump University, uh, which was in existence from I believe two thousand and five till two thousand and ten. Um, 
Now, the department says it plans to update its college scorecard website to provide more accurate data about student debt, earnings after graduation, completion rates, program costs, things like that for both for-profit and nonprofit schools. So I think the argument here is that schools shouldn't be targeted based on their for-profit status and that providing more information should be enough of a safeguard here, they think. So, so Jay, what do yeah. you think about this proposal? No, I, I think that's right. I think it, if it's you know good for the goose, good for the gander, the, the issue that uh, the regulation applies only to for-profit schools, I, I find to be uh, sort of troubling. Um, again, that's not to say that, uh, that, uh, you know, there weren't plenty of bad actors out there in the for-profit world. Um, but there were, there was a lawsuit a couple of years ago about, uh, law schools. Uh, again, these are prestigious nonprofit, um, uh, you know, established, uh, law schools and essentially inflating their, uh, employment numbers that they report, uh, and folks, you know, taking on again, a whole lot of debt under the assumption that, that look, this many per this percentage of, of people find jobs so many years out and it's at this and this salary. So yeah, I'll take on that debt. Um, so I, I think if, if, if you're going to do this kind of reporting, um, and I'm, I'm a little bit on the fence about, uh, about whether this is something the government really needs to be involved in or whether it's something that, um, well, I don't know. You mean uh, organizations, yeah, organizations could do it by themselves, or, or you know, let let uh, sort of the the private sector, the the, the marketplace, uh, sort of sort this out. Um, uh, but if they if the government is going to weigh in, I think it ought to be a a fair across the board um, yeah. well, uh, reporting. Well, well, I think the market has totally failed to do this on its own, and for good reason, understandably so. It's difficult to make a profit doing that sort of thing. So I think this is one of these instances where there's no good market incentive to create a comprehensive comparison site that's that's you know that's essentially free for everyone oh, to use. But, no, so, but look at all well, like the, I'm, I'm the, the US News and World Report. Uh, that, that, that's, a the total, that's a totally different thing. Things. No, that's yeah. a totally different thing, Jay. And that's uh that's uh volunteer reporting and those those rankings are ridiculous for so many reasons. They the are, reason we yeah. have a college scorecard is because the market has failed repeatedly to do this and there are just something that's not that's not the oh, blame the market i would say yeah it's, to some extent it's it's it, the dishonest reporting well the, the, yeah and that's just to say that there are certain things that markets just inherently don't do well certain goods they don't provide certain what are called public goods markets aren't set up to provide them in this case i would argue this is a public good but that that's a secondary issue i would say that i i totally disagree with you about the elimination of the gainful employment rule being a good idea in part, it makes me think about the reference to uh, the Voting Rights Act and uh, what's called, and I'm, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with this, and may, many listeners maybe too, this idea of preclearance. And it used to be, right. up until very recently, certain southern states right, had to get approval or preclearance before they changed some of their voting laws. And the reason why it particularly applied to these states is because they had shown a strong pattern of discrimination against minority groups in the past. And so to me, you know, I understand the, the fundamental logic of it should be the same for everyone. But the fact of the matter, and we've talked about this in other contexts, when it comes to laws and regulations, one size does not fit all. Just like with Dodd-Frank, I argued that, you know, Dodd-Frank was in many ways, as it was originally set up, was unfair to small community banks. And I was actually in favor of some of those loosening of regulations for those banks for a lot of reasons. And you were right. Yeah. yeah, and I was right. And I think it's the same thing here. So I think certainly that given 
what we've seen about so much bad behavior in the very recent past that this still makes a lot of sense. Now, I know it doesn't seem that way to Betsy DeVos, who's devoted you know, much of her personal fortune to pushing for for-profit higher education and all of the for-profit higher education people she brought into the education department. So, of course, they're going to see things that way, and they are entirely wrong about this. Okay. This, this to me, and I would say uh, arguing the other side, is one of those examples of, of regulations uh, setting up where um, it's a barrier to entry of, of other competitors. And, and I think that's, that's sort of the argument of, look, there's, the traditional college system that we've got has a whole lot of problems, that it's, it's outrageously expensive. It keeps getting more and more expensive. Uh, we could do a whole show on why. Uh, and the results, it turns out, uh, seem to be less and less, uh, you know, appealing, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we seem to have uh, people with fewer skills, fewer marketable skills, uh, fewer uh, critical thinking skills um, that, that, you know, what you're, you're, you're paying, paying more and getting less. Um, uh, For-profit uh, colleges sort of arrived on the scene offering a primarily vocational type um, uh, program um, that may be good, that may be bad, uh, but uh, to me, having the government again step in and and um, again sort of set barriers to entry you know, uh, it, to the market is 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 that's this is the type of regulation that I often uh, complain about. That uh, and again, that's not to say all, all the, the for-profit colleges are, are are good or bad. Some of them are were absolutely terrible. Um, More than some. I mean, it, this okay. isn't like a few bad apples. And I understand your argument about barriers to entry. And as a general rule, I agree with it. But like there are certain instances in which barriers to entry are a good thing. Like for, say, your surgeon. You want there to be a sure. pretty high barrier. And I would say this is one of these cases where you're asking someone to devote two, three, four more years of their life, tens of thousands of dollars, if not more, to this endeavor. Well, I think it's reasonable to make sure that to at least to put in some safeguards to ensure that people aren't being built. And we have a lot more safeguards when it comes to nonprofit higher education on this. There are sure. regional accreditors and, and all sorts of other things, and we don't have that structure set up for for-profit. It's become, it was just kind of, kind of a, like a Wild West thing, or it was. And so I think there need to be barriers to entry here, given what's at stake. And you know what? That's that's a fair point. Uh, but I would say, let's make those barriers to entry applicable to everyone. Now, again, you, you mentioned the surgeon idea, uh, right? But but you would you would oppose uh, you know one one uh, set of uh, regulations for a surgeon who works for a nonprofit uh, organization, hospital, and another who works for a for profit. Yeah, I see your point. I, I, right? I, I mean, I, well, I'm, I'm just saying it ought to be an objective standard and let's really. do it across the board. Well, I see what you're saying, and I would, I would change the frame of reference on that. If that were the only thing, if it were only the profit or nonprofit designation, I would totally agree with you. But I look at patterns of past behavior. So to me, the analogy would be more not a surgeon working for a for-profit or nonprofit, but a surgeon who's had a record of uh, botched surgeries in the past and someone who's had a much better record. And so right. you put people on probation and that sort of thing. All right. So fair enough. All right. Well, well, there you go. I think that about does it for this week's show. But before we go, I want to let everyone know that as soon as Jay and I are done recording this show, we're going to be doing our special supporters exclusive bonus after show. And I think this week, uh, 
maybe we'll talk a little bit about uh, Amorosa's new book and uh, President Trump and the N-word and, you know, taping conversations in the Situation Room. Wow. <laughs> um, non-disclosure agreements. And also, I, if we have time, I'd love to get into these uh, group of former De- Detroit school kids who are actually suing in federal court because they argue their education was so bad they believe it violated one of their fundamental constitutional rights. And I'm sure JSM. Which, which one's stuff. that? Well, we'll get which into that, that, certainly. Yeah. So if you're a supporter, that will be waiting for you. It should be by the time you hear this. So I'm doing my job, right? Um, and if you're not a supporter and you'd like to check it out, again, just go to politicsguys.com slash support or just go to politicsguys.com and click on support the show or the Patreon or PayPal links. And we will get you set up and you can be listening to our bonus show. So But that is it for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We do hope you like what you heard. And if you haven't already subscribed to the show, that is a huge help. So if you could do that, as well as sharing episodes with your friends, enemies, colleagues, what have you. Um, And it's generally really easy to do right in your podcast app. Also, you know, uh, if you could leave reviews and ratings of the show on iTunes, that helps as well. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that by mailing us at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us when we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you join us.